And in a way, I'm finding it much more interesting to remain spiritually conscious in the 80s and finding that the embrace, the, like we're much closer to having face it, to facing in the daily news, the issue of our potential death. And that is a major cultural vehicle for awakening. The confrontation with death is one of the, as Castaneda says, keeping death on your left shoulder. It is the vehicle that helps you awaken the most. And that's what we're confronted with much more now. So it felt, it seems like optimum time for spiritual growth to me. Hello, amazing ones. Welcome to another Ramdas Here and Now podcast episode. I am your host, Jackie Dabrinska. And each one of you, you are the Ramdas Satsang. This community of individuals from around the world who have an inclination towards expanding consciousness and the different planes of consciousness and love and service and so much more. Thank you for tuning in. This is episode 233, The Optimum Time for Spiritual Growth. I love that title. When I hear it, I wonder, isn't every time the optimal time for spiritual growth? Um, The Be Here Now. Uh, But it reminded me also of this talk I went to recently where I heard the person talk about the three yugas or the four yugas, um, these epochs of time described in yoga philosophy with this notion that right now we're in the Kali Yuga, which is the most challenging time because it's the most tamasic. It's the most dense. It's where our true self is most concealed, lots of concealment. Um, But it also is, they say, the time that we have the biggest opportunity for spiritual growth. But this person had a little bit of a different theory that I want to share. And it was that all the um, yugas exist at the same time. We just can jump between them. Um, And so that part of what we need to do in this time when we're feeling the darkness and the disconnect from our true essence is to actually vision a time of peace and interconnectedness and harmony Because if you're a mountain biker or a paddler or probably a thousand and one other things, you know that what you look at is what you hit. And so I just wanted to share that because it felt important. But this uh, podcast today, this episode, it's the second half of the 1985 interview we started last time. Uh, It's from the Questline radio show. And in it, he, Ramdas and Peter, um, they start and end by talking about service and how our actions of service touch both humanity and God, uh, whatever that word means for you. Uh, They go on to unpack so-called negativity, which I think is something we can all be um, learning from. And then they discuss what is the heart and the seemingly difference between the spiritual, emotional, and physical heart. Uh, There's this great bit about mysticism and science and where they intersect. Uh, and then he talks about his ironic reunion with Timothy Leary at Harvard in the early 80s. Uh, they also talk about the difference between Jesus and Buddha and other masters and how we can know them. And there's also a bit about uh, death and the stages of loss. At the end, they reference his, at the time, new book, but it now old and still amazing book, uh, How Can I Help? called How Can I Help with him and Steve Gorman. And I'm going to just share one of my absolutely favorite quotes from that book. It's one I try to live by. And it's, I work to end suffering 
without attachment to whether suffering ends. I'll read it one more time. I work to end suffering without attachment to whether suffering ends. Uh, This book has so many gems like that. It's a great one to check out, especially if you're in the helping field. And you can find it at our shop, uh, which is shop.ramdas.org. And speaking of helping, the last few weeks, the country has witnessed the devastating fires in Maui. And we have gotten many calls and emails asking, is Ramdas's house okay? And it is. We also have been getting a lot of inquiries about how can I help? Um, so if you would like to donate, please go to hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash Maui dash strong. I'll read that again. hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash Maui dash strong. But also remember, there's hundreds of fires that have been burning in Canada over the summer. And uh, if I have this right, I think it's 13 million hectares have burned, which I want to say is almost three times as many acres. Um, So you can help Canada by donating to the Canadian Red Cross. Also, if you wanted to talk about helping more, what's yours to do, adding to the well of compassion in the world, um, please come to our next Soul Pod virtual meetup. It's where we build community, continue this legacy of Ramdas, and discuss great talks like this one. Uh, we host them every two weeks. Plus, we also have a lot of affinity groups and specialty groups that you can sign up for. So to find out more, just go to ramdas.org fellowship. Again, that's ramdas.org fellowship to sign up. And as always, we thank our sponsors for Without Them. We could not bring you these podcasts. It takes so many people. You'd be amazed to bring this to you every two weeks. Um, And we also couldn't do it without you, the listeners and the people who donate. So if you don't already, please donate by going to ramdas.org slash donate. So we hope this is a nourishing episode for you and that these teachings, whatever good may come from them, that they benefit all of us in our daily lives and ripple out into the world for the benefit of all beings. And we give thanks to all of our teachers and our teachers' teachers. So here is Ramdas, here and now. Namaste and blessings. Welcome back to the Questline Show. Thank you, Peter. It's nice to be back here again. Ramdas, uh, when we left off last week, we were talking about karma and the outflowing of love from North America towards Ethiopia. And I guess that's really appears to be a worldwide phenomenon. Yes, it does. So I guess you would look at those things as being very useful in terms of karmic the karmic lesson for the entire world. Yes. Yes. You, uh, your name, Ramdas, means servant of God. Mm. And um, did you know when you came back from India, did you know you were going to go out to serve people? Well, I had a pretty good idea because whenever I'd say to my guru, how can I know God or how can I become free? He'd say, feed people, serve people. And uh, since I met him in a Hanuman temple, Hanuman is a monkey, and in the Ramayana, which is the Bible in, the, in a large part of India, um, Hanuman is uh, depicted as a being who is closest to God through service, who lives only to serve God, whose name is Ram in this case. And so my name is the name of Hanuman, Ramdas. I am that monkey in that sense. And um, 
he, uh, the, the storyline goes that uh, God's wife is stolen away by the bad guy, Ravana in this case, and uh, uh, Ram, God, has taken a human incarnation, so he's uh, terribly upset that his wife's gone. And Hanuman uh, leaps across the ocean, finds her, reports back, and then helps Ram get her back. And he just has this incredible power because of his devotion to God, that he's living only to serve God. It's what in Christianity they say, not my, but thy will. It's that same one, where you surrender yourself into the higher statement of what's called the Dharma, if you will. And then you become an instrument of those forces in the universe which are moving things towards harmony, towards peace, towards love. And you're just part of that force, if you will, of the universe. But when you say service to God, you're not looking at God as a separate entity from humanity. Yes, that's true, you're not. Yes. You're not. Yeah, exactly. Some people would, but you're yes. not. No. So you're serving your fellow man, therefore you're serving God. Yes. Was that a difficult transition to to make, to drop that personality? You had a very high-profile personality in the 60s with Timothy Leary and, uh, being a Harvard uni University mm -hmm. professor, the first one to be, I think, uh, uh, thrown out. Thrown out. Thrown out is, is, is the way to put it right. Um, that must have been terribly difficult for you in the process leading up to whatever you were searching for, whatever you were yearning for, to start to... Is it a dismantling process of the The, uh, the, the name at first, the whole idea of the name, just like I came back wearing Indian clothes and I had a long beard and beads and all that, was all method. It was all, like if somebody keeps yelling, say somebody says, hey, servant of God, and you say, yeah, that's me, it reminds you of what your business is. And it was the same thing. If I go down the street with my beard and with my weird outfit and my beads, people don't come on to me they, like they would otherwise. It, it kind of removes me from the sexual arena. It removes me from the, they're gonna, not going to try to sell me a Cadillac. I mean, it's a whole different world I'm living in. I'm projecting out saying, this is who I am, this is who I am, this is who I am. Most people say, there's a weirdo, I don't want to have anything to do with him. And then it attracts to you other people who say, hey man, what are you doing dressed like that? Why do you call Ram Dass? And that's an opening from which, with which you meet another soul, if you will, along the way. So it's a selective environment creator, if you will. Mm -hmm. Then as I got more secure in my connection to God, then it didn't matter. I mean, I could be Dick Alpert just as easily as Ram Dass. Now, I don't really care. I mean, it was, it's just that Ram Dass is now a familiar word that I can use, you know. Were you coming from the perspective of denying, denying that personality? Or were you coming from the perspective of trying to unfold into something greater? I think initially it was a combination of both. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd like to say it was all expanding into something greater, but the fact is that Richard Alpert in those days had a lot of inadequacy, a lot of feeling of uh, achievement, frustration, and motivation, a lot of... Uh, really kind of neurotic patterns that didn't, weren't that appealing to me. I would have been very happy to get rid of it. But then I realized that that wasn't really what the game was. It wasn't to get rid of a part of myself. It was to honor it and allow it and become, integrate that with the rest of me, with the new thing that was emerging. And that new thing that was emerging becomes greater. Yeah. Is, is that it, really yeah, what It happens? includes the other one. It includes the other one. Do you find yourself shifting back into that lower self? Hardly ever. 
And when I do, it's the vibration shift is so noticeable for me. It's like diving from ear into water or something like that. Suddenly it's like you're swimming through molasses or something like that. And you think, what am I doing here? And then you just come up for air again. So in other words, you the only thing that'll get me down in there is my desire system. I mean, if somebody walks by that is sexually attractive and that pulls me into that realm of I want or I desire or something like that, I'll feel a shift in consciousness. And from the past, I know that is in the realm where happiness lies. That might be the realm where pleasure lies, momentary pleasure. But I'm really committed now. I really see that I would like freedom and love and joy and peace and uh, qualities that are not necessarily instant pleasure. As you go down this path of awakening towards enlightenment, um, does it affect your diet? Do you sit down and say, well, now I must be a vegetarian to... to further myself down this path? I don't think there are rules to the game. I mean, when I look at the people who have been very high beings in different traditions, they've eaten everything from air to uh, meat. So uh, I don't know that there's any simple rule. I think there are methods that involve dietary processes. If you're going to work with energies like kundalini yoga or things like that, you've got to be very careful of your diet because the vibratory quality of the food you eat will affect the nature of the body as a vehicle for manipulating these energies. And if you're going to work with, say, pranayama, which is breath control, you damn well have better have a clear dietary control. But if you're working with other methods, like I'm going to Burma next week uh, to sit in meditation, and um, uh, I expect the diet over there will be basically rice, white rice, and pork. Now, uh, I haven't eaten that diet for 15, 20 years, and it's not my diet of choice, but I'm not going to reject it because of the diet. Why do you, you, you do this frequently, do you not go back to Burma or someplace in the in the Far East to, to meditate for long periods of time, certainly what I would consider to be long periods of time. I would consider it to be long periods of time. I've never read, meditated this long before. Oh, you haven't? No. And Not last, in one swell foop. One of, the, one of the previous times that we spoke, you indicated you'd start sometimes at 3 in the morning? Through yeah, this, this next three months, I will be sitting from 3 in the morning till 11 at night every day. Every day? Yeah, you sit for about an hour, and then you walk for about 20 minutes. In a walking meditation formal, then sit, then walk, then sit, then walk. And you eat once at 6 in the morning and once at 11.30 in the morning, and then you don't eat after that. You can only take water after noon. What do you see as the purpose of that? Of the meditation? Oh, yes, of, of this three months. The purpose is for me to uh, extricate my awareness from my identification with my thoughts and my senses. So that I can be in my thoughts and my senses, but not of them. You know, so this is a continuation of your path to enlightenment. Absolutely. And the, it also, as I quiet my mind, the depth of the quality of my love or the quality of my heart goes deeper so that I get behind romantic love, which always has an object to it, so that I go from, being, from loving something to being in the state of love, which is a whole different quality of love. Okay. This goes from romantic love to conscious love. As we start to... Um go down the path, we, we started to awaken a bit, something is wrong, and we, we start to take that opportunity to get on the path of, of awakenment. Yeah. You can slide in and out at yeah, the beginning, right? Infinite number of times, yeah. Can you slide in and out of enlightenment, or is that a final destination? Well, um, 
I, there are a lot of systems that talk about that. In Buddhism, which is one of the systems that deals with that very directly, they talk about Sotipana, the stream entra, and then the, the re, five-time return or three-time return, and then the non-returner, which is the arahant, or what's called the Buddha. Uh, and uh, you can, uh, once you are, have entered into Nibbana, you can still go back again, yeah, but you're already on a time lock about how many times you'll go back or you're, you're going to go ahead. You're always going to go ahead. The process is evolving all the time. But yet, you, yes, you can go back. Just to clarify, Nirvana then it does not come with death. You can experience no. Nirvana in this physical incarnation. It is psychological death, but it's not physical death. Okay. Ramdas, can we get into meditation as a vehicle towards enlightenment? Um, how, I mean, it boggles my mind when I sit here and listen to you talk about going for three months to meditate. Mm. Um, because most of us don't have that opportunity. I mean, we have responsibilities, family, kids, got to make a paycheck. How can we get there? How can we use meditation? Is that the vehicle to use to get to enlightenment? Uh, I think there are um, many, many stages of meditative practice. And... Uh, I think if you just sit down for 20 minutes a day and uh, do some technique that allow you to quiet your mind, you start to get a payoff. And then that leads to the next thing. And then you'll want to maybe do a weekend workshop sometime or a five-day or a 10-day retreat or something like that. But even the 20 minutes will give you the perspective, will start to give you perspective about the rest of your life. When I'm on that path to awakening, do I then start to see people, myself and other people, um, can I see them beyond their human incarnation? Yeah, exactly. As you see yourself beyond, you'll see them beyond. If you don't see yourself beyond, if you're attached to your desires, you will only see them in relation to your desires. And I'll always be trying to structure things around me. Around to gratify your desires. The minute you are not standing in your desires, it's like this, the, the statement, the truth waits for eyes unclouded by longing. When you don't have the yearnings that distort your perception, because any yearning you identify with immediately selects what you see in the world in terms of whether it'll satisfy that or not. The minute you get behind your desires, you just see others as they are. You see their desire systems, but you also can look and see behind that and see another being just like you that has got their work to do, their, their illusion to dance through. That's where the clarity of, of, of yeah, sight comes. Exactly. Is that right? Yeah. When you have no emotional investment as to an outcome, you're then able to just simply stand back and see things as they are. Yeah. Is that what, yeah. what you're saying? But it doesn't mean a deadened quality. It's not a non... I mean, you're emotionally alive. I have feelings, joy, sadness, all that stuff. But there is also awareness. It didn't destroy me. I have a body, but I'm not that... I, my body's 54 years old, but I'm not 54. I am in a 54-year-old body, but it is 54 and it is decaying. And that's the way of things. Just accepting. Allowing, yeah. Allowing, Allowing things to be. Yeah. Um, in meditation, I've heard that there is a point you can get to. I, I think, the, do, do the Buddhists call it the garden of fantasy or something? Yeah, where things are unreal? Um, I've been told that, that some people, trans channelers, for instance, mm -hmm. um, I, I've spoken with Kevin Ryerson. Are you aware of Kevin? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And somebody said to me, well, he never got out of the garden of fantasy. 
which you can go through uh, in meditation, where things are not real. You're attracting spirits and that sort of thing. That's what the astral planes. Yeah, the astral planes. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Is that those are planes? Has that happened to you? I've certainly been on the astral planes a lot. Yes. So you've gone through that. Well, I have been on the astral planes. I don't know that I've gone through it, but I mean, they just get subtler and subtler and subtler. But I am working to get done with all of that. Those are mythic realms. They're also uh, realms in which you meet beings that aren't embodied. It's the realms of uh, where powers are, all the cities or powers. Um, but that's all still stuff. The game is to go beyond stuff. Okay, you started meditating on, uh, on your own path. Uh, towards enlightenment. When was the first time that happened when you found yourself on the astral planes? Through meditation? Yeah. Did, I mean, I got there through drugs very quickly. Yes. Then it took me years to catch up through meditation where I had gotten with drugs. Was there a desire at any point in time when you were, when you embarked on the meditation course to go back to drugs? Oh, I did. I've gone back to drugs. I've taken LSD every two years for the past 20 years. Why did you do that? because I think it's a method that I've used successfully and I want to see it can often there are ways in which you get a very subtle stance of attachment the way you're doing your method and the one thing that LSD does is it cuts through it shows you where you're holding it may not free you but it shows you where you're holding and so I've used it often to just remind me of things or to see where I am in relation to that clarity because my guru as I've said in Miracle of Love, took uh, 1,200 micrograms of LSD, which is a monstrous dose of LSD, and nothing yeah. happened at all. Because he already is where that would take you to. And so I take it to see if I'm yet... I mean, when I can take it and it's like water, I'll know I'm done. Well, that's interesting. Going back to that, when you gave your guru the, the 1,200... Yeah. Um, what was 1,200 what? Micrograms. Micrograms. Your rational mind, you said, just sort of gave up when, when there was no reaction. Yeah, him. exactly. Yeah, and that's because he is in such a, he is in an enlightened state. Sure, if I take it to go from state A to state B, and he's already in B and A, it's going to have no effect on him. He's got nothing to let go of because he's not holding anywhere. So do you find yourself getting closer on that ladder when you take your LSD yes, trips? Yes, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. Okay. In fact, I have no desire to do that stuff. I mean, it's not coming out of yearning. It's just coming out of honoring my past and my work and my report, repertorial responsibilities. It's far out. I understand. Ramdas, this transformation to enlightenment, is it one of transforming negative experiences into positive experiences? It's, um, it is seeing that all experiences are vehicles for awakening. They're all useful, positive and negative. It doesn't make, in that sense, it makes negative positive because it makes everything positive and that it all can bring you to God. It all can free you. So you don't see things in terms of good or bad? I certainly can see the realm of good and bad, but I see behind that too. And behind that, it's a learning opportunity. Exactly. Okay. If, if we, if we do not react to people that extend negativity towards us, and I, and I gather enlightenment would be something like that, not reacting towards any negativity that's flowing into you or not buying into an external situation or person. Inwardly, yes. Yeah. Externally, you might say stop. You would still react. That's what I'm getting at. 
yeah. reaction and action are different. You wouldn't react, but you might act. You might act because, I mean, I'm, I study Aikido, for example, or I've studied a little bit of it, and I might act in order to keep the, another person from hurting another person or from hurting themselves or from hurting me. But I'm doing it out of a quietness of being, not out of fear, not out of reactivity, but out of it's an appropriate action to stop that behavior. Okay, well, what, what's the difference then? Um, I react, but I am totally that emotion of reacting. Yeah. Okay. And you're saying that in terms of the path um, towards enlightenment, you are really separated. You are acting, but you're not consumed by that action. Exactly. There's still the observer there. The Bhagavad Gita says you do not identify with being the actor. Although action happens. It's the same way as I said before about your heart beating. It's beating, but you're not beating your heart. Mm -hmm. The action happens because it's appropriate, but it's not reactive in your part because you're very quiet. You're not caught. You didn't get caught in the person. If they say you're a jackass or you're a fool or they swear at you, mm -hmm. instead of you buying their mind, you see what their mind is caught in. Your heart doesn't close towards them, but then you do whatever you must do to protect them and you and everybody else from the effects of their actions. What is the... Either in one of Stephen Levine's books, I think you wrote, you wrote the preface, mm -hmm. preface to it, and you said something. I'm paraphrasing, but basically, to read it or listen to it with your heart and not your intellectual mind. Mm -hmm. Can you differentiate what is the heart for someone? Yeah, you, you know, to, semantic problem. Right. For most people, the heart either means something which can be transplanted. I mean, it's either a biochemical yeah. uh, an organ of the body, or else they're dealing with emotionality. But um, the heart, in spiritual terms, is a, um, is, has a deeper level to it also, which is in a way the repository of the soul, or of the intuitive awareness, or of the higher consciousness, higher self, if you want to call it. And uh, it's a little confusing because when you say use your heart, it may, most people think of emotionality mm -hmm. of the world of love and hate, but this is behind that. It is merely as opposed to, it's put as an opposite, opposition to using your intellect, thinking your way out of it. Because think heart, the heart is in a merged or subjective relationship to the universe, while the mind, the intellect is always in an object. It always thinks about something. Yes. So there's always object. And when thinking comes down into the heart and takes over the heart, you are in love with somebody. It's an object. Thing. Yes. While when you come into the quality of love, when you just are in love, there's no object. It's all, you meet somebody, it's in subject. We are all in love together. It's, it's not the same quality at all. So do you think that the heart does reside somewhere in our physiological makeup? Could it be the, the right spiritual brain? heart? The spirit, no. It's, it's much more interesting than that. I mean... We die and our brains get eaten by ants and everything, and yet here we still are. So how could it be? No, I don't at all think. I think that the, we are very much in science, unfortunately, a little like the drunk in the streetlight, you know, who's looking for the watch under the streetlight. And somebody helps him look, and then they say, I don't see it anywhere. Where'd you lose it? He said, I lost it up in the alley. Said, well, why aren't you looking up there? Because there's a streetlight here. Well, we're a little bit like that. We can measure certain things. So we decide truth must lie in the realms we can measure. 
but actually our measuring instruments just fall short of the realm of where the psyche really is. So in some way, I feel like I am more true to what psychology is about than I ever was when I was a professor at Harvard as a behavioral psychologist. But we're always trying to break things down in the world of science, aren't we? Because science is discriminations. It's discriminating this from that. It's building a body of knowledge on the, with con a conceptual body of knowledge. Yeah. Do you think that's changing with quantum physics saying that there's an interconnectedness? It's everybody? right at the edge. I mean, uh, certainly in physics and in transpersonal psychology and in genetics. And uh, you're getting very, very close to the, like Oppenheimer saying, to say that the basic stuff is is wrong and to say that it isn't is wrong is getting close to the edge of mysticism. It's right where science and mysticism come together, they join. And if somebody like Einstein was a very mystic person, he saw beyond that. Mm -hmm. And the true scientists are very reverential of the possibility. The lesser ones are very attached to their concepts. Well, there's a story that I, I read in one of the books, I can't remember, but it was of the Western scientist making his way to the top of the mountain and as he gets to the summit and he has his hands on the top of the summit and he's pulling himself up and he comes face to face with the smiling theologian who's been there through the ages. Mm. Do you believe that? Well, I think the theologian is probably not even as far up on the mountain as the, I mean, theologians are not mystics. Theologians well, let's say mystics or spiritual. Oh, a mystic, a mystic. You, he might well meet a mystic, yes. I mean, I think that's what really does happen. I think that the mystic isn't laughing, ha ha, I've been waiting for you, but the mystic is already dealing with those realms. And that's why Eastern philosophy and Eastern spiritual traditions are becoming more interesting to the West now, because science has legitimized them in an interesting way. And uh, so that somebody like Fritjof uh, uh, Capra with the Tao of Physics or books of that yes. ilk are, are really much more received now by the serious scientific community. Uh, uh, Bohm's work. Uh, there are a lot of uh, really current uh, physicists that are getting a good hearing for this interface right now. Uh, during the break around us, we were just talking about this being an exciting time to be, be alive. Yeah. And you said it's always exciting. Mm. What do you find so exciting about today and, and relay the story to our listeners about your reunion with Timothy Leary? Well, <laughs> Tim and I were having a 20th anniversary reunion at Harvard of our being thrown out of Harvard for our research with psychedelic chemicals. And we were being introduced by Dave McClelland, who has the, was the guy that threw us out. And um, Dave said, these guys were a part of the 60s, which was a very exciting period, and the 80s are really terrible and chaotic and very uh, uh, frightening. And I got up and I said, I think the 80s are the greatest time we've ever had, and it's absolutely wonderful to be here, because in a way, the more you get on with your spiritual journey, it's as if you invite more fierceness to you to work with it. It's like you want the sandpaper of the fiercer conditions. And in the 60s, there was this incredible support system for this kind of idealism. There isn't that support system the same way now. And in a way, I'm finding it much more interesting to remain spiritually conscious in the 80s and finding that the abrasive, the like we're much closer to having face it, to facing in the daily news the issue of our potential death. And that is a major cultural vehicle for awakening. 
The confrontation with death is one of the, as Castaneda says, keeping death on your left shoulder. It is the vehicle that helps you awaken the most. And that's what we're confronted with much more now. So it, felt, it seems like optimum time for spiritual growth to me. It gives you the opportunity to, to face any addictive tapes again and again. Again and again, exactly. And it pushes them into the surface, pushes them up all the time. You've done a lot of work with the, with the dying. With, yeah. Um, why is there that common fear of death, particularly because, here in the West? Because, well, not particularly in the West, just for all human beings, because of the identification with your separateness. I, I often thought that the, that the Eastern people were more uh, philosophical about To the it. extent that they have a philosophy that doesn't lead them to identify with their own separateness, they do. But See, they, have a, they have a sense of the Atman within, which is something that is not unique to them. It's, the, it's like God within. And they know that's who they are, so that they can see the bodies as coming and going. So you've worked with, with dying people yeah. and uh, their relatives and close friends around them. What is that process like for the majority of people? I know we're generalizing, but the majority of people, when it starts, they're told they're terminally ill. Well, uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross has, has formulated a, a crude statement of stages that are reasonably common of, uh, of uh, anger, of denial, anger, bargaining, despair, and then um, sort of resignation is really what her last stage gets, as far as it gets. Beyond that, there are, I'm only interested in what happens after that, which is really to the acknowledge and allowing and the opening to. And that's the, the using death as a vehicle for awakening. That's the part I'm interested in. But you must go through those first stages with those people. Well, most everybody goes through them, depending on how evolved you are as a, a conscious being. Depends on how quickly you go through that stuff and how much you hold on. I mean, some people can go through them as fast as they think of them, they go through. And others can stay in one stage all the way through and die in that stage. There are a lot of people that die denying and pushing away death. And they say to the doctors, don't tell me what's wrong with me. And I want a lot of drugs, so I will not know what the situation is. And it's just denial all the way to the end. That's the level of incarnation there. The more conscious you are as a being in an incarnation, the more you would like to deal with your death consciously. What happens to someone that, uh, that goes out of this world kicking and screaming like they came into this world? Their attachment to their body just reassures they'll take another body very quickly. They'll start again. Okay, those that have opened up yeah. and are awakened as, as they leave and pass on, yeah. where do you think they, they end up? Where's, where does that spirit end up? Well, there are different levels of awakeness. I mean, you can awaken out of identifying with your physical body, but you might still be identified with your soul. And that has more training to go through. There are a lot of other planes besides this one. This is just one of the minor planes, I suspect. Uh, then there are beings who are done, really, like a Buddha. And when somebody said to the Buddha, where will you go when you die? He said, where does the fire go when the fuel's used up? Is that where this interpretation comes in of nothingness? Yeah. Which, which frightens the hell out of people. I understand. Who are really attached. It means nothing in form. But it doesn't mean nothing. A master, can we call Jesus a master? Because look at where did the fire go? See, it just got transformed back into something else. Mm -hmm. It didn't go nowhere, this conservation of whatever you want to call it, of energy. 
Yeah, but when you're coming from the physical existence. Yeah, from being a log, it's going to hard when you think the log's going to go. Sure. Yeah, that's, that's all I am. If you've identified with your body, you're going to suffer. And death is going to be the biggest suffer and the biggest scary one of all. And for a materialistic society, where you can't take it with you, it scares the hell out of you. What's scary, yeah. Jesus was a master. Buddha was a master. Mm. They were different they, kinds of masters, though, by the way. How would you differentiate them? Well, I think Buddha was a being who took a birth and worked on himself to get to his final statement. I think Jesus was born fully aware, really. I mean, I think the statement Jesus is the son of God means that it is a conscious entity that takes an incarnation to serve. It's an avataric form they talk about in Hinduism. That's what I was going to ask you. So somebody like Buddha now, if he came back, that would be a conscious decision to reincarnate. Yes, exactly. That's what's it, called the Bodhisattva. Role. And Jesus, you're saying, was. That was. Yeah. And he came down to, to, to help us, yeah. to start to see. Yeah, they all help us. They're incredible, graceful. What other masters have there been in history? Well, I think every tradition has had its masters. Um, uh, in Hinduism, which I know most comfortably, there's uh, Ramakrishna, Sai Baba, my, my guru, I feel, was such a being. Um, Nityananda. Um, Guru Nanak and Sikhs, Muhammad, uh, for the uh, Islamic community. Um, I think probably uh, Moses was a pretty conscious being. Um, Solomon. I think that a lot of them, you don't really know how far out they were, historical ones, because the people who reported on them weren't that conscious. The problem is that you've got to read between the lines in holy books to figure out who you're dealing with, because the person that's reporting is only seeing their own desires projected outward. So at best you could look at these because we are looking at interpretations of other people, yeah. people's perception of these people. So really the path is to work within yourself and find the truth within yourself. Yeah, in fact, the, the deeper I go within myself, the more I can know Christ. Because it takes one to know one, if you will. And yes. I've just got to keep cleaning up my act. And the quieter I get, the more intimate I am with my guru or with Buddha or with Christ. And we are all Buddha within inside. We are all Christ consciousness. We are all, I mean, that's, it's in there. And you go inside to get out, if you will. I understand. Yeah. Ramdas, just before we have to go, uh, can we talk a bit about your new book, which you uh, co-authored with Paul Gorman, entitled How Can I Help? Um, the major thesis of the book is that in each of us is an incredibly generous heart. And that we are frightened of the impulsivity of our hearts, that we would just give away it all if our hearts ruled. We're afraid of that. So the mind constantly says, be careful, you can't get too caught in the suffering of others. You've got to protect yourself. And it's a, a dialogue between the heart and the mind. And this book faces that dialogue and shows the way in which we cut ourselves off from helping out of our fear. And we get caught, we climb into professional roles of doctor or nurse or so on, identifying with the role rather than just fulfilling the role. And that the real helping is where we meet each other behind the roles so we don't get caught in what we call helper's prison. And, so that, and that's where both 
You know when helping is working, when everybody's getting helped. When you're doing something for somebody else and the doing of it is helping you and them at the same moment. And it's, uh, the book is designed to help people get out of the things that burn them out in helping or make them afraid to participate. What sort of things would burn you out in helping? Identifying with being the helper. Expecting something in Expect return? Being attached to the effects, too. I mean, I'll do what I can for somebody. What happens to them is in God's hands, not my hands. I'm not God. I mean, in the, as the doer, I will do what I, I am, but I'm not. I will do what I can do for them. And then what happens is what must happen. I'm not trying to manipulate the universe. I'm just trying to play my part. If you were a uh, medical doctor, you're trying to save somebody's life and that person You do dies. what you can, and then they either live or die. And the living or dying is not in your hands. And the burnout comes from the attachment to the fruits of the action. It doesn't make you a better doctor to be attached to the fruits of the action. That's the fallacy I'm thinking. The book is entitled, How Can I Help? It'll be available at the Phoenix Metaphysical Bookstore as well as the Banyan Bookstore in Vancouver and possibly some other outlets. Ramdas, thank you very much. Peter, it's a delight to work with you. It really is. Well, listen, I, it's, it's been most enjoyable. And I hope we can do it again. I hope so, too. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.